The story of our Savior began long before that iconic silent night, and the lineage of our Lord runs deep. Disguised in the downcast and dejected, and through shadowed sorrow and suffering it starkly stands. Though at times hushed and hidden, the holy remain ushered in, never turning back when others turn their backs, ever and always keeping its kin. The blessed and beautiful, passed over and protected, tying up the promise and wrapping up the gift to be given again and again and again the very face of grace at Christmas. One word, that's all it is. Just one word. And that one word determines the difference between success and failure, to be elevated or devastated. It is a word that you hope your children will master and use in their lives. And in your spiritual journey, it's a word that you frequently need to use to stay spiritually healthy and to grow in your walk and relationship with God. What is that word? Would you like to know it? Well, I want to invite you to lean in and listen to the story that we're going to look at in our text this weekend. Now, listen carefully. I'm not going to be putting scriptures up on screen like I normally do. So have your Bibles ready because I want us to think about it as a story. That way, it'll have a greater and more powerful impact. Later on, you can go back and read it through carefully and I think you gain even deeper and more insights as a result of that. So, I want to start by talking about a woman, a young woman, who is rather obscure in the scriptures. We don't know a whole lot about her, but she understood the importance of this one word that I'm talking about. In fact, she used this one word to actually save the lineage of David and therefore, the very lineage by which the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, would be born. She's mentioned in Matthew chapter 1, and I'm going to read just a part of the lineage because her name is mentioned there. Here we go. Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Now, 
you're probably wondering to yourself, all those names or a lot of those names seem rather obscure to me. But there's one in particular we're going to focus on as we kick off our series, Experiencing Christmas Grace. Before we do that, though, let me talk a little bit about what the context is of us dipping into the genealogy of Jesus. I want you to think about the time right after the flood. You know, it was a fresh start where people would once again realize God's sovereignty and trust God and be obedient to God. But quickly, human hearts became rebellious and turned away from God. They wanted to follow themselves. They wanted to follow other gods. And so God dispersed the nations. But God chose a specific man named Abram, called him away from his idols and paganism, and told Abram that he was going to use him to father a nation, and through that nation, all nations would be blessed. In fact, God made it pretty clear that through his lineage, Abraham's family would come one that would reconcile the whole world to God, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But the problem was Abram's family had a difficult time behaving well, honoring God, being obedient, doing what is right. And sometimes they really got off the pathway and got themselves in trouble as a result of that. Because of that, God oftentimes would choose different individuals to get them back on the road, so to speak. And one of those is Tamar. I read her name when we looked at the genealogy. Tamar was a Canaanite woman, not even a Jew, that God uses to actually save the lineage of David and therefore the line from which our Messiah would come again. Isn't it awesome to know that God has the ability to use the least of these, the most unknown people, the smallest names, the, the least popular to do profound and great things? That gives hope to all of us, doesn't it? And Tamar is somebody like that. I mean, Tamar's reputation, by the way, has been greatly un, uh, misunderstood by pastors and readers and preachers. She's oftentimes been associated with some of the other women in the genealogy of Jesus as being promiscuous. Some even accuse her of incest. Others say that she's a very cunning, conniving woman. But I think you're going to see that a lot of that is just a big misunderstanding. And indeed, she was really an instrument of God's grace and how that grace works in our life. So let's talk a little bit about that. If you want to take your Bibles and turn back to Genesis chapter 37, that's where we really pick up the whole story of Tamar. It actually begins with a passage that's rather famous to most of us, and that's the whole story of Joseph. If you remember, Joseph's brothers hated his guts. One of the reasons why they hated him so much is because, well, he was his father's favorite, and Joseph kind of knew it and let them know it at times by his actions and by his words. At one point, they were plotting to murder him. When they saw him coming to them, he'd gone out to check on them for his father. But it was Judah, remember that name? It was Judah who spoke up and said, you know, we don't want to kill him. We don't want his blood on our hands. Instead, he said, let's sell him into slavery. And that's what they did. They sold poor Joseph. He was taken by the Ishmaelites to Egypt. And then they had to come up with a plan of how they were going to explain this to their dad. So the plan was that they would rip to shreds his beautiful coat. They would kill one of the animals from their flock. 
dip the ragged coat in its blood and bring it back to the father, which they did. And when Abraham, uh, and when Jacob saw that, Jacob just ran to the conclusion, oh my goodness, a wild animal must have attacked my son, killed him, and this is all that is left. And he began to mourn, he began to cry, as you can imagine. Now, I don't know if the brothers thought that somehow getting rid of Joseph would then turn the attention of the father Jacob to them, and maybe he would uh, distribute his love more fairly or not. But if that's what they expected, it didn't happen. Jacob's love now just simply moved off of Joseph as his favorite to Joseph's full-blooded younger brother, Benjamin. Now, Benji was his favorite. And maybe that's what led to what we read in the beginning of Genesis chapter 38, verse 1. It just simply says, About this time, Judah left home and went down, or went down to the land of, and in the Hebrew, if you're going to pronounce it the right way, it's the Canaanites, or we say the Canaanites, to live and dwell there for quite some time. Now, this idea of Judah going downhill is not just a, a physical description of him going downhill, but I want you to think about this. It's kind of a spiritual description as well. This guy is really going downhill spiritually. And maybe you're experiencing a little bit of that in your life right now. You know, you're struggling with some temptations or some issues or some challenges, not walking as closely with the Lord as you have been in the past. This word we're going to find in a little while, it's going to help you recover and get back on the road again, just like it helped Judah as well. So Judah goes down and lives amongst the Canaanites, or the Canaanites, and uh, he finds a woman and marries her. And they have three children. Their names are Ur, E-R, very simple, all right? Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Now, when Ur is old enough to have a wife, Judah bargained with another Canaanite and uh, found a wife for him, and her name was Tamar. Now, you got to feel for Tamar. She would have only been about 15 years of age, which, interestingly, is about the age that Mary was when she was engaged to Joseph. They married pretty young back then. And so here's Tamar, this poor girl. She has really little say in the marriage. It's brokered by, brokered by her father and by Judah. And all of a sudden, she's joined to this man named Ur. And the Bible tells us that Ur was a wicked man. It doesn't tell us how wicked he was or what wickedness he was involved in, but it was wicked enough that the Bible says that God took his life because of his wickedness and his rebellion against God. Let me just read to you what it says there in chapter 38. It says, But Ur was a wicked man in the Lord's sight, so the Lord took his life. Can you imagine being 15, 16 years old and married to a character like that? I mean, how wicked could he have been that God would take his life? Was he a, was he a drunkard? Was he abusive to her? Did he carouse around with other women? What kind of evil man was this? Poor Tamar. I can't imagine what she must have gone through. Well, what's going to happen next to her? Well, according to the customs of that day, that would later on become known as the Liberite Law, she is then to be married to the next of kin, which would be Er's brother, Onan. And Onan is responsible to take her as a wife and to conceive with her 
until she has a son. When that son is born, that son will then carry on the name of his, of uh, her first husband, Ur. And whatever inheritance Ur as the oldest child had coming to him is now going to be passed on to this boy, to this son. Which is something that Onan was not really excited about. Because the way inheritance has worked in those days is that the eldest son always got a double portion. Which for Onan means I'm not only going to get my portion that had coming to me, but I'm getting my, my older brother's portion as well. I mean, he was set for life, which then helps us understand what it says about Onan in the scriptures. Let me read it to you. It says in verse 8 here, it says, But Onan was not willing to have a child who would not be his own heir. So whenever he had relations with his brother's wife, he purposely spilled his seed on the ground. This prevented her from having a child who would belong to his brother. That's pretty mean, isn't it? I mean, you got to really hate your brother, even though he's dead, to do something like that. You don't care about his name and his lineage. You don't care about his children. You don't care about his, uh, the wife. goes on and says, But the Lord considered it evil for Onan to deny a child to his dead brother. So the Lord took Onan's life too. Wow. Tamar is twice widowed now, and she's left with Shelah as a third son, and Judah does not want her to marry his third son. In Judah's mind, this girl is bad luck. Every, you know, two of my sons have already died. What's going to happen to Shelah? And so he tells her to go home and to live with her father, and he says, when Shelah's old enough, I'll, I'll let you know, and then you and he can get married. Well, Judah has, the scripture tells us, has, absolutely no intention of Shelah marrying Tamar. So Tamar is stuck there wearing her widow's clothes. And as a result of that, what happens next is Judah's wife dies. So now Judah buries his wife and he's mourning her death. After he's done mourning her death, he goes up to a place called Timnah to shear his sheep. He was a wealthy man. Tamar heard that he was coming. And Tamar was no fool. She was a clever woman. So she took off her widow's clothes and she dressed up like a prostitute and covered her face with a veil. And she set herself up outside a city called Enaim on the way to Timnah. Now, it was not unusual in those days for these pagan temples and pagan religions to have what would be called cultic prostitutes. And so there she was, and she must have really knew, known something about her father-in-law's life because when he saw there was a prostitute there, he went to her to seek out sex. It's quite a story, isn't it? You don't hear too many sermons on this. You're probably wondering, what does this have to do with Christmas? What does this have to do with some special word? You're going to find out in just a little bit. What I want to do, though, is I want to, I want to read to you the exchange between Judah and what he perceives to be a prostitute. It says in verse 16, so he stopped and propositioned her. Let me have sex with you, he said, not realizing that she was his own daughter-in-law. How much will you pay to have sex with me, Tamar asked. I'll send you a young goat for my flock, Judah promised. But what will you give me to guarantee that you will send the goat, she asked. Well, what kind of guarantee do you want, he replied. She answered, leave me your identification seal and its cord and the walking stick that you are carrying. So Judah gave them to her. Then he had intercourse with her, and she became pregnant. 
Afterward, she went back home, took off the veil, and put on her widow's clothing as usual. When she asks Judah for his seal, the cord, and the staff, and what that means is on his staff was a cord and attached to it was a seal, it was like asking him for his ID. It was like asking him for his credit card because that little seal is what he would use to ratify contracts or, or you know, to pay bills or it was kind of like his signature, his stamp. And so he goes in and as the scripture says, they have a relationship. She's going to get pregnant as a result of it. And he goes, he goes on his way. The next day he sends a friend to try to find the prostitute to give them the, the young goat that he promised. And the guy shows up and he can't find the prostitute. And he asks the people in Nahum, do you know where that prostitute is, the temple prostitute? And they say, we don't have one around here. And so he kind of shrugs his shoulders and goes back to Judah. And I guess Judah's got to go out and find his new ID. Well, three months later, word on the street is Tamar, twice widowed, is pregnant. And Judah is enraged when he hears about it. How dare that woman commit adultery? Doesn't she realize that, you know, she's still married even though she's a widow? How could she do such a thing like that? What a hypocrite, right? I mean, he's really going downhill. It's okay for him to go visit a prostitute and have sex after his wife dies. But, you know, Tamar, she has to stay there. And he has no intention of her ever marrying Shayla. So she's going to become very vulnerable, very isolated, you know, and live in poverty the rest of her life with no hope, no lineage of earth to be carried on. And so he demands that she be brought out and that she be burned at the stake. Can you imagine how just how intensely evil and wicked Judah was to want his daughter-in-law to be burned alive. And so they brought her out and they prepared to burn her, but she sent a message. And as you read it in the text, I hope you do that there in Genesis 37 onward, she, um, she's kind of cool, calm, and collected. And what she does, she says, I want you guys to take these things, the staff, the, the cord, and the, and the seal, and would you, would, you, would you take it to my father-in-law? And tell him that whoever this belongs to, they're the one, that's the person that got me pregnant. And if I'm going to burn, I mean, they should have something to pay as well. And it is like this incredible moment of truth. What is Judah going to do when he sees his stuff? Let me read to you the response and what happens, okay? It says in the passage of Scripture here that when Judah is finally confronted by all this. That in verse 25, it says, they were taking her out to kill her. She sent this message to her father-in-law, the man who owns these things made me pregnant. Look closely whose seal and cord and walking stick are these. Judah recognized them immediately and said, she is more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son, Shelah. And Judah never slept with Tamar again. When the time came for Tamar to give birth, it was discovered that she was carrying twins. And while she was in labor, one of the babies reached out his hand. The midwife grabbed it and tied a scarlet string around the child's wrist, announcing, this one came out first. But when he pulled back his hand, out came his brother instead. What? The midwife exclaimed, how did you break out first? So he was named Perez. Then the baby with the scarlet string on his wrist was born. He was named Zerah. Perez. Perez means 
breakout, okay? And this is more than just a physical breakout that's that's happening here. There's actually a, a spiritual breakthrough that's taking place. You're thinking to yourself, ah, that's the word. That's the word, breakthrough or breakout. That, that's the word you're telling me is so important in my life and my kids' lives and, and something I need to think about a lot. I don't know what it means, but that's the word, right? And the answer to the question is no, it's not the word, all right? But it's a clue that will help us find the word that I really want to talk about. In order to find that clue, though, I'm going to ask you to go back with me to Genesis chapter 37. Remember the whole story of Judah and Joseph and that whole thing. You know, when uh, the boys went back to their father uh, with that coat that they had torn to pieces and dipped in blood, they asked their father, do you nakar this? Do you nakar this? It's a Hebrew. In other words, Father, do you recognize this? And, and Jacob says, I nakar that. I recognize that. That's my son's coat. Now, there's a, there's a play on this word nakar or this word recognize. And the play is this. While Jacob does recognize, he does nakar the coat, belonging to his son, he does not, Nakar, he does not recognize the fact that he's being deceived, that he's being fooled. You pick up this theme again when you go over to Genesis chapter 42, again in the story of Joseph, when Jacob sends his sons, all but Benjamin, to Egypt to buy grain because the famine is so desperate. It says that as they came in, and now Joseph is the viceroy of Egypt. I mean, things have changed in his life. It says that he nahar his brothers. He recognized his brothers, but his brothers did not nahar, did not recognize him. As far as they were concerned, Joseph was dead and gone someplace. Listen carefully. It is said that the worst sin in your life is the one you do not recognize. And I want you to think about that for a moment. The worst sin in a person's life, in your life or my life, is the one that we don't recognize. It stops our spiritual growth. It can be devastating and debilitating to us, to our kids. And so yes, our word, the word we're focusing on is this word recognize, nakar. That's what Tamar causes Judah to do when she sends her things to him and says, do you know whose these belong to you? In other words, what she's saying to him is, Judah, do you recognize yourself when you see this? Do you recognize who you really are? Do you recognize your injustice? Do you recognize your unkindness? Do you recognize your evil? And it's like this huge moment of truth. It reminds me of two more stories. One is in 1 Samuel, the other is in 2 Samuel. There are the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David. Remember, Saul rejected God's word. He didn't obey God. He didn't follow through on the command that God gave him to wipe out a nation that had been so evil. And when Samuel the prophet comes and he confronts Saul and he says, why, you know, why didn't you obey God's word? You know what Saul does? He blames everybody else. He says, well, the people made me do it. And the prophet Samuel says, and because of that, God has rejected you, and not just you, but your lineage as well. Not one in your family will sit on the throne. 
Now go to 2 Samuel and you have David, right? I mean, David, you know, is obscure like Tamar was, but he rises, he's elevated to fame, right? He defeats Goliath, he writes the Psalms, he's a man, you know, with a heart that's after God. He's just this godly man until pride gets involved. And one day he sees this woman Bathsheba, she's bathing naked, and he lusts for her. And he, she happens to be the wife of one of his best generals, and he has her brought to him, and he commits adultery with her, and he impregnates her. And then to cover everything up, he has her husband, he has her has him murdered in a battle. Now that is a heinous sin. Compared to what Saul did, whoa, this is a lot worse. And so the prophet Nathan comes to David. He tells him a little parable. He says, you know, there was this rich guy that had company coming, and he needed to make a meal for them. And he went over to his neighbor, who was very poor, and took the family pet, the family sheep, away from him and killed it to serve his friends. And David, it says, became enraged when he heard that. And he said, that man deserves to die. And then Nathan points at him and he says, and that man is you. You are the man. Now, the difference between David and Saul is when David hears that, immediately he confesses and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned. And he owns it. What does he do? He nakar. He recognizes his sin and his evil. And God forgives him. And he will have a lineage. He will have family that will sit on the throne and eventually the king of kings will be born, the Messiah, as a result of that. Now, did David suffer consequences for his sin? Absolutely, just read the story. But the point is, he was forgiven when he recognized his sinfulness, when he recognized the evil in his life. You know, um, Tamar is God's instrument in Judah's life, an, an instrument of grace that God uses to kind of poke Judah to recognize the evil in his life. You see, until you and I recognize the evil in our life, the sinfulness in our lives, the things that are happening in our lives that are not pleasing to God, until we recognize those and confess those, we can't move forward spiritually. We can't experience the elevation that God wants to bring into our life. We can't, we can't experience the spiritual success that God wants us to have in our life. We need an instrument of grace that comes and, and reminds us of what's in us so we can get rid of what is in us. It's like a person with a cancer. You know, some cancers lay dormant in your body and then when they start to activate themselves, you really don't know it until it's too late. They're too far gone. And the only way to catch it is you need to have a complete scan of your body and be able to see that, right? In the same way, God invites us every day to do a complete spiritual scan to search ourselves so that we're not inhibited in our journey with him, our fellowship with him, and in our spiritual growth as a result. Grace, grace changes us. Grace elevates us. Grace, grace grows us if we're willing to recognize what's happening in us. And it changed Judah's life. Final little story about Judah. You know, he and his brothers went to Egypt and Joseph kind of messed them a little bit. He kept their brother, uh, Simeon, said, you're all spies, and I'll, I'll let Simeon loose, but you need to go home and bring back your little brother, uh, Benjamin. And so it is a, it's tough for these guys to convince Jacob to let them bring Benjamin with them, but finally they do. And Benjamin shows up, and Joseph is pleased, and, and he says, hey, you, can guys, you guys take Simeon, you can all go home. But he has his 
personal silver cup planted in the bag of Benjamin by, by one of his assistants. And as they're leaving Egypt, the uh, equivalent of Egyptian police pull them over and do a check and go to Benjamin's bag and there's the silver cup. And they bring them back. And the brothers are distraught when he brings them back. And, and Joseph says, look, Benjamin's the guilty one. I'm going to keep him here as, you know, and, and he's going to be my slave because of what he's done. You guys go back home to your father. And when he says that, Judah just falls apart. He can't handle it. And I, I just want to read to you what he says in, in uh, Genesis chapter 44 and verse 30. Judah says to Joseph, And now, my Lord, I cannot go back to my father without the boy. Our father's life is bound up in the boy's life. So Judah is saying, you know, he's our father's favorite. He loves that boy. Remember last time Judah had Joseph sold to Egypt because he was father's favorite. He says, if he sees that the boy is not with us, our father will die. All of a sudden, he's concerned about his father. He says, we are your servants. We who are your servants will indeed be responsible in sending that grieving white-haired man to his grave. Oh, for the first time, he's willing to own something. He says, my Lord, I guaranteed to my father that I would take care of the boy. I told him, if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame forever. So please, my Lord, let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. For how can I return to my father if the boy is not with me? I couldn't bear to see the anguish this would cause my father. That is a changed man. That is not the same Judah that we read about in chapters 37 and 38. What changed him? He owned his sin. He recognized his sinfulness. He confessed it. And he let God's grace, he let God's grace transform him. And Tamar was that beautiful instrument of God that he used to confront and correct Judah's life. You know, God has an instrument of grace that he's used in your life and my life. It's called his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And this Christmas season, to experience Christmas grace, even as a believer already, to experience Christmas grace is to realize how we've been elevated by God's love, how we've been transformed by God's love. Do you realize that Joseph was elevated to the second most powerful man in the world? But I want you to think about this. Judah becomes elevated to be the father of kings. King David and, humanly speaking, King Jesus. What does God's grace want to do in your life? Let's pray. Father, I just ask as we consider our own lives, as we do some introspection that you would reveal to us any areas, Lord, that we need to confess and deal with. Lord, is there any sin in our lives, any evil in our lives that we just need to give up so that, Lord, we will stay on course with you? And, and Lord, it's not just about us. It's about the generations in our family to come. We want to be that example to them. We want to model for them being obedient, being humble, being sincere, and walking with you. We thank you for this wonderful Christmas gift of grace. Help us, O oh God, to live in it. In Jesus' name, amen.